This is Novels and Naps, Episode 9. Greetings, friends, and welcome back to Novels and Naps. I'm your host, Emily. For those of you that are new here, think of this podcast as a low-maintenance book club. I read, comment, and ramble, and you just listen. And if the book or my voice are boring, you can fall asleep, and I won't even know. It's a book club and a bedtime story. My plan is to read through selections from classic novels and provide you with some verbal annotations and whatever random commentary comes to mind. All of the text that I'll be reading will be coming from the public domain because, as I've mentioned many times, student loans, expensive lawsuits, etc. So here's your opportunity to catch up on all of those classics that you said that you read but never really did. We're still reading Jane Eyre because this is the book that never ends. I may have prolonged it because I took a bit of a leave of absence for a moment because I was overwhelmed with work. Uh, I teach. It's exhausting. Um, And it's winter and it's raining. So I just stepped back for a little bit. But I'm back now and I'm remembering how much fun it is to listen to the sound of my own voice. So let's recap. Last we left them in episode eight. Jane and Rochester were planning to get married, and it was a very quick engagement. Cat just jumped on the keyboard. Um, Not ideal. Sorry, cat. Go away. What are you doing? Jane and Rochester didn't invite anyone to the wedding, but I guess that's what happens when you decide to get married in two weeks or two months or whatever it was. It was not a very long time. But they had some surprise visitors including our good friend who was at the party that randomly showed up and then got attacked. Ooh, and Jane wasn't supposed to ask about it. Turns out that there was an objection of the wedding and Rochester has been hiding his wife in uh, in his house. And that's who Grace Poole has been taking care of because she's not actually the one doing the scary laughing at night and lighting bedclothes on fire. So it has been revealed that Rochester is already married, which is a shock and surprise to our friend Jane, who is probably 19 at this point, maybe if she's had a birthday. Pretty young, pretty new to the world. And yeah, so now Jane has to figure out what she's going to do since she's not getting married. And oh geez, does she really want to stay at Thornfield with Rochester, who has been lying to her and is creepy? Apparently not. So, let's dive in and see what happens. Sometime in the afternoon, I raised my head and looking around and seeing the western sun gilding the sign of its decline on the wall, I asked, what am I to do? But the answer my mind gave, leave Thornfield at once, was so prompt, so dread, that I stopped my ears. I said I could not bear such words now. That I am not Edward Rochester's bride is the least part of my woe, I alleged, That I have wakened out of my most glorious dreams and found them all void and vain is a horror I could bear and master, but that I must leave him decidedly, instantly, entirely, is intolerable. I cannot do it. But then a voice within me averred that I could do it and foretold that I should do it. I wrestled with my own resolution. I wanted to be weak that I might avoid the awful passage of further suffering I saw laid out for me, and conscience, turned tyrant, held passion by the throat, told her tauntingly she had yet but dipped her dainty foot in the slough and swore that with that arm of iron he would thrust her down to unsounded depths of agony. "'Let me be torn away,' then I cried. "'Let another help me.' "'No, you shall tear yourself away. None shall help you. You shall yourself pluck out your right eye, yourself cut off your right hand, your heart shall be the victim, and you the priest to transfix it.' I rose up suddenly, terror-struck at the solitude which so ruthless a judge haunted, at the silence which so awful a voice filled. My head swam as I stood erect. I perceived that I was sickening from excitement and inanition. Neither meat nor drink had passed my lips that day, for I had taken no breakfast. And with a strange pang, I now reflected that, long as I had been shut up here, no message had been sent to ask how I was, or to invite me to come down. Not even little Adele had tapped at the door. Not even Mrs. Fairfax had sought for me. "'Friends always forget those whom fortune forsakes,' I murmured, as I undrew the bolt and passed out. I stumbled over an obstacle, my head was still dizzy, my sight was dim, and my limbs were feeble. I could not soon recover myself. I fell, but not on to the ground. An outstretched arm caught me. I looked up. I was supported by Mr. Rochester, who sat in a chair across my chamber threshold. Really, Rochester? That's what you do with your time? You're just gonna sit out there and wait? Of course you are. 
how could we expect anything less? You come out at last, he said. Well, I have been waiting for you long and listening, yet not one movement have I heard, nor one sob, five minutes more of that death-like hush, and I should have forced the lock like a burglar. So you shun me? You shut yourself up and grieve alone? I would rather you had come and upbraided me with vehemence. You were passionate. I expected a scene of some kind. I was prepared for the hot rain of tears. Only I wanted them to be shut on my breast. Now a senseless floor has received them, or your drenched handkerchief. But I err. You have not wept at all. I see a white cheek and a faded eye, but no trace of tears. I suppose then your heart has been weeping blood. Well, Jane, not a word of reproach. Nothing bitter, nothing poignant. Nothing to cut a feeling or sting a passion. You sit quietly where I have placed you and regard me with a weary, passive look. All about you again, Rochester. All about you. Jane, I never meant to wound you thus. If the man who had but one little ewe lamb that was dear to him as a daughter, that ate of his bread and drank of his cup and lay in his bosom, had by some mistake slaughtered it at the shambles, he would not have ruined his bloody blunder more than I now rue mine. Will you ever forgive me? Guys, he was trying to commit bigamy. He's 20 years older than Jane, so Jane's 18 or 19, so he's 38 or 39. He's old. He should know better. And and he's turning this all around on, on Jane. Like, oh, why didn't you check on me? Oh, I too have been wounded by her inability to get married. Because I, already married, am. Oh, Jane, why are you not weeping? Why do you not look sad enough? Blah, 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 blah. He's an unpleasant person because he's a man. Continuing. Reader, I forgave him at the moment and on the spot. There was such deep remorse in his eye, such true pity in his tone, such manly energy in his manner. <laughs> manly energy in his manner. And besides, there was such unchanged love in his whole look and mien. I forgave him all, yet not in words, not outwardly, only at my heart's core. Good job, Jane. You know I am a scoundrel, Jane. Ere long, he inquired wistfully, wondering, I suppose, at my continued silence and tameness. The result, rather, of weakness than of will. Yes, sir. Then tell me so roundly and sharply, don't spare me. I cannot. I am tired and sick. I want some water. He heaved a sort of shuddering sigh, and taking me in his arms, carried me downstairs. Why is he carrying her? That's weird. I don't like that. At first, I did not know to what room he had borne me. All was cloudy to my glazed sight. Presently, I felt the reviving warmth of a fire. For summer as it was, I had become icy cold in my chamber. He put wine to my lips. I tasted it and revived. Wine? Really? Give her some freaking water. Then I ate something he offered me and was soon myself. I was in the library, sitting in his chair. He was quite near. If I could go out of life now, without too sharp a pain, it would be well for me, I thought. Then I should not have to make the effort of cracking my heartstrings and rending them from among Mr. Rochester's. I must leave him. It appears. I do not want to leave him. I cannot leave him. How are you now, Jane? Much better, sir. I shall be well soon. Taste the wine again, Jane. I obeyed him. Then he put the glass on the table, stood before me, and looked at me attentively. Suddenly he turned away with an inarticulate exclamation full of passionate emotion of some kind. He walked fast through the room and came back. He stooped towards me as if to kiss me, but I remembered caresses were now forbidden. I turned my face away and put his aside. "'What? How is this?' he exclaimed hastily. "'Oh, I know. You won't kiss the husband of Bertha Mason? You consider my arms filled and my embraces appropriated?' "'Well, yeah, Rochester. You're married. And she has these, these morals that have been inculturated in her. Why, why would she want to kiss you? Why?' "'At any rate, there is neither room nor claim for me, sir.' Why, Jane? I will spare you the trouble of much talking. I will answer for you. Because I have a wife already, you would reply, I guess rightly? Yes. If you think so, you must have a strange opinion of me. You must regard me as a plotting profligate, a base and low rake who has been simulating disinterested love in order to draw you into a snare deliberately laid, and strip you of honor and rob you of self-respect. What do you say to that? I see you can say nothing in the first place. You are faint still, and have en enough to do to draw your breath. In the second place, you cannot yet accustom yourself to accuse and revile me. And besides, the floodgates of tears are opened, and they would rush out if you spoke much, and you have no desire to expostulate, to upbraid, to make a scene. You are thinking how to act. Talking, you consider, is of no use. I know you. I am on my guard. Sir, I do not wish to act against you. 
I said, and my unsteady voice warned me to curtail my sentence. Not in your sense of the word, but in mine you are scheming to destroy me. You have as good as said that I am a married man. As a married man, you will shun me. Keep out of my way. Just now you have refused to kiss me. You intend to make yourself a complete stranger to me, to live under this roof only as Adele's governess. If ever I say a friendly word to you, if ever a friendly feeling inclines you again to me, you will say, That man had nearly made me his mistress. I must be ice and rock to him, and ice and rock you will accordingly become. Well, you are a married man, Rochester. That's just a fact. That's a thing that is true. I cleared and steadied my voice to reply. All has changed about me, sir. I must change too, and there is no doubt of that. And to avoid fluctuations of feeling and continual combats with recollections and associations, there's only one way. Adele must have a new governess. Oh, Adele will go to school. I have settled that already. Nor do I mean to torment you with the hideous associations and recollections of Thornfield Hall, this accursed place, this tent of Aiken, this insolent vault, offering the ghastliness of living death to the light of the open sky. This narrow stone hell with its one real friend. <laughs> this narrow stone hell with its one real fiend. Worse than a lesion of such as we imagine. Jane, you shall not stay here, nor will I. I was wrong ever to bring you to Thornfield Hall, knowing as I did how it was haunted. I charged them to conceal from you, before I ever saw you, all knowledge of the curse of this place. Merely because I feared Adele never would have a governess to stay if she knew with what inmate she was housed, and my plans would not permit me to remove the maniac elsewhere. Though I possess an old house, Ferndean Manor, even more retired and hidden than this, where I could have lodged her safely enough, had not a scruple about the unhealthiness of the situation in the heart of a wood made my conscience recoil from the arrangement. Probably those damp walls would soon have eased me of her charge, but to each villain his own vice, and mine is not a tendency to indirect assassination, even of what I must hate. Concealing the madwoman's neighborhood from you, however, was something like covering a child with a cloak and laying it down near an upas tree. That demon's vicinage is poison and always was, but I'll shut up Thornfield Hall, I'll nail up the front door and board the lower windows. I'll give Mrs. Poole two hundred a year to live here with my wife, as you term that fearful hag. Grace will do much for money, and she will have her son, the keeper at Grimsby Retreat, to bear her company, and be at hand to give her aid in the paroxysms when my wife is prompted by her familiar to burn people in their beds at night, to stab them, to bite their flesh from their bones, and so on. Wow, he has a really high opinion of women, as we have mentioned before. And and I know there is the, the time and whatnot in how the mentally ill were treated, but, you know, he sounds a little manic, too. And, like, he could also use the support of a psychiatrist. And there's no shame in that. I have an excellent one through Kaiser. She's great. I, you know, work for a clinical psychologist, you know. But he's got ideas about women. And, and we know that from the way he's talked about Adele. From the way he talks at Jane. And... As much as you don't want Bertha to be your wife, Rochester, she's your wife. You married her. And now you're living with that. And maybe you could have tried for a divorce or something. But implying that you could have sent her somewhere else to die, and since you, you didn't do that because you didn't send her to the drafty, mildewy, Ferndean manor, as, as though that makes you some kind of good person with a conscience? Like, Really? Anyway, sir, I interrupted him. You are inexorable for that unfortunate lady. You speak of her with hate, with vindictive antipathy. It is cruel. She cannot help being mad. Thank you, Jane. Jane, my darling, so I will call you, for so you are. You don't know what you are talking about. You misjudge me again. It is not because she is mad I hate her. If you were mad, do you think I should hate you? I do indeed, sir. Then you are mistaken and you know nothing about me and nothing about the sort of love of which I am capable. Every atom of your flesh is as dear to me as my own. In pain and sickness it would still be dear. Your mind is my treasure and if it were broken it would be my treasure still. If you raved my, raised my arms... Whoa. If you raved my arms should confine you and not a straight waistcoat. Your grasp even in fury would have a charm for me. If you flew at me as wildly as that woman did this morning I should receive you in an embrace at least as fond as it would be restrictive. I should not shrink from you with disgust as I did from her. In your quiet moments you should have no watcher and no nurse but me. And I could hang over you with untiring tenderness, though you gave me no smile in return, and never weary of gazing into your eyes, though they had no longer a ray of recognition for me. 
But why do I follow that train of ideas? I was talking of removing you from Thornfield. All you know is prepared for prompt departure. Tomorrow you shall go. I only ask you to endure one more night under this roof, Jane, and then farewell to its miseries and terrors forever. I have a place to repair to, which will be a secure sanctuary from hateful reminiscences, from an unwelcome intrusion, even from falsehood and slander. And take Adele with you, sir, I interrupted. She will be a companion for you. What do you mean, Jane? I told you I would send Adele to school, and what do I want with a child for a companion and not my own child? A French dancer's bastard. Why do you importune me about her? I say, why do you assign Adele to me for a companion? You spoke of a retirement, sir, and retirement and solitude are dull. Too dull for you. Solitude! Solitude! He reiterated with irritation. I see I must come to an explanation. I don't know what sphinx-like expression is forming in your countenance. You are to share my solitude. Do you understand? Uh, <laughs> uh no, no, thank you, controlling friend. I shook my head. It required a degree of courage, excited as he was becoming, even to risk that mute sign of dissent. He had been walking fast about the room, and he stopped as if suddenly rooted to one spot. He looked at me long and hard. I turned my eyes from him, fixed them on the fire, and tried to assume and maintain a quiet, collected aspect. Now for the hitch in Jane's character, he said at last, speaking more calmly than from his look I had expected him to speak. The reel of silk has run smoothly enough so far, but I always knew there would come a knot in a puzzle. Here it is, now for vexation and exasperation and endless trouble. By God, I long to exert a fraction of Samson's strength and break the entanglement like toe. He recommenced his walk, but soon again stopped, and this time, just before me. Jane, will you hear reason? He stooped and approached his lips to my ear. Because if you won't, I'll try violence. What the fuck? His voice was hoarse, his look that of a man who was just about to burst an insufferable bond and plunge headlong into wild license. I saw that in another moment, and with one impetus of frenzy more, I should be able to do nothing with him. The present, the passing second of time, was all I had in which to control and restrain him. A movement of repulsion, flight, fear, would have sealed my doom, and his. But I was not afraid, not in the least. I felt an inward power, a sense of influence, which supported me. The crisis was perilous, but not without its charm, such as the Indian perhaps feels when he slips over the rapid in his canoe. I took hold of his clenched hand, loosened the contorted fingers, and said to him soothingly, "'Sit down. I'll talk to you as long as you like.' and hear all you have to say, whether reasonable or unreasonable. He sat down, but he did not get leave to speak directly. I had been struggling with tears for some time. I had taken great pains to repress them, because I knew he would not like to see me weep. Now, however, I considered it well to let them flow as freely and as long as they liked. If the flood annoyed him, so much the better. So I gave way and cried heartily. Soon I heard him earnestly entreating me to be composed. I said I could not while he was in such a passion. But I am not angry, Jane. I only love you too well, and you had steeled your little pale face with such a resolute frozen look. I could not endure it. Hush now, and wipe your eyes. His softened voice announced that he was subdued, so I, in my turn, became calm. Now he made an effort to rest his head on my shoulder, but I would not permit it. Then he would draw me to him. No. Jane! Jane! He said in such an accent of bitter sadness. It thrilled along every nerve I had. You don't love me, then? It was only my station and the rank of my wife that you valued? Now that you think me disqualified to become your husband, you recoil from my touches if I were some toad or ape? These words caught me. Yet what could I do or say? I ought probably to have done or said nothing. But I was so tortured by a sense of remorse at thus hurting his feelings, I could not control the wish to drop balm where I had wounded. I do love you, I said, more than ever, but I must not show or indulge the feeling, and this is the last time I must express it. The last time, Jane. What, do you think you can live with me and see me daily, and yet, if you still love me, be always cold and distant? No, sir. That I am certain I could not. And therefore, I see there is but one way, but you will be furious if I mention it. Oh, mention it! If I storm, you have the art of weeping. Mr. Rochester, I must leave you. For how long, Jane? For a few minutes will you smooth your hair, which is somewhat disheveled, and bathe your face, which looks feverish? I must leave Adele and Thornfield. I must part with you for my whole life. I must begin a new existence among strange faces and strange scenes. Of course, I told you you should. I pass over the madness about parting from me. You mean you must become a part of me. 
as to the new existence it is all right you shall yet be my wife i am not married you shall be mrs rochester both virtually and nominally i shall keep only to you so long as you and i live you shall go to a place i have in the south of france a whitewashed villa on the shores of the mediterranean there you shall live a happy and guarded and most innocent life never fear that i wish to lure you into error to make you my mistress why did you shake your head jane you must be reasonable or in truth i shall become frantic his voice and hand quivered his large nostrils dilated his eyes blazed still i dared to speak sir your wife is living that is a fact acknowledged this morning by yourself if i lived with you as you desire i should then be your mistress to say otherwise is sophistical is false jane i am not a gentle-tempered man you forget that i am not long-enduring i am not cool and dispassionate out of pity to me and yourself put your finger on my pulse feel how it throbs and beware he bared his wrist and offered it to me the blood was forsaking his cheek and lips they were growing livid i was distressed on all hands to agitate him thus deeply by a resistance he so abhorred was cruel to yield was out of the question i did what human beings do instinctively when they are driven to utter extremity looking for aid to one higher than man the words god help me burst involuntarily from my lips i am a fool cried mr rochester suddenly i keep telling her that i am not married and do not explain to her why i forget she knows nothing of the character of that woman or of the circumstances attending my infernal union with her oh i am certain jane will agree with me in opinion when she knows all that i know just put your hand in mine janet that i may have the evidence of touch as well as sight to prove you are near me and i will in a few words show you the real state of the case can you listen to me yes sir for hours if you will i ask only minutes jane did you ever hear or know that i was not the eldest son of my house that i had once a brother older than i i remember mrs fairfax told me so once and did you ever hear that my father was an avaricious grasping man i have understood something to that effect well jane being so it was his resolution to keep the property together he could not bear the idea of dividing his estate and leaving me a fair portion all he resolved should go to my brother rowland yet as little could he endure that a son of his should be a poor man i must be provided for by a wealthy marriage he saw me a partner betimes mr mason a west india planter and merchant was his old acquaintance he was certain his possessions were real and vast he made inquiries mr mason he found had a son and a daughter and he learned from him that he could and would give the latter a fortune of thirty thousand pounds that sufficed when i left college i was sent out to jamaica to espouse a bride already courted for me my father said nothing about her money but he told me miss mason was the boast of spanish town for her beauty and this was no lie i found her a fine woman in the style of blanche ingram tall dark and majestic her family wished to secure me because i was of a good race and so did she they showed her to me in parties splendidly dressed i seldom saw her alone and had very little private conversation with her she flattered me and lavishly displayed for my pleasure her charms and accomplishments all the men in her circle seemed to admire her and envy me i was dazzled stimulated my senses were excited and being ignorant raw and inexperienced i thought i loved her there is no folly so besotted that the idiotic rivalries of society the prurience the rashness the blindness of youth will not hurry a man to its commission her relatives encouraged me competitors piqued me she allured me a marriage was achieved almost before i knew where i was oh i have no respect for myself when i think of that act an agony of inward contempt masters me i never loved i never esteemed i did not even know her i was not sure of the existence of one virtue in her nature i had marked neither modesty nor benevolence nor candor nor refinement in her mind or manners and i married her gross groveling mole-eyed blockhead that i was with less sin i might have but let me remember to whom i am speaking my bride's mother i had never seen i understood she was dead the honeymoon over i learned my mistake she was only mad and shut up in a lunatic asylum there was a younger brother too a complete dumb idiot the elder one whom you have seen and whom i cannot hate whilst i abhor all his kindred because he has some grains of affection in his feeble mind shown in the continued interest he takes in his wretched sister and also in a dog-like attachment he once bore me will probably be in the same state one day my father and my brother Rowland knew all this but they thought only of the thirty thousand pounds and joined in the plot against me these were vile discoveries but except for the treachery of concealment i should have made them no subject of reproach to my wife even when i found her nature wholly alien to mine her tastes obnoxious to me her cast of mind common low narrow and singularly incapable 
of being led to anything higher, expanded to anything larger, when I found that I could not pass a single evening, nor even a single hour of the day with her in comfort. That kindly conversation could not be sustained between us, because whatever topic I started, immediately received from her a turn, at once, coarse and trite, perverse and imbecile. When I perceived that I should never have a quiet or settled household, because no servant would bear the continued outbreaks of her violence, an unreasonable temper, or the vexations of her absurd, contradictory, exacting orders, even when I restrained myself, I eschewed upbraiding, I curtailed remonstrance, I tried to devour my repentance and disgust in secret, I repressed the deep antipathy I felt. Jane, I will not trouble you with abominable details. Some strong words shall express what I have to say. I lived with that woman upstairs four years, and before that time she had tried me indeed. Her character ripened and developed with frightful rapidity. Her vices sprang up fast and rank. They were so strong, only cruelty could check them, and I would not use cruelty. What a pygmy intellect she had, and what giant propensities. How fearful were the curses those propensities entailed on me. Bertha Mason, the true daughter of an infamous mother, dragged me through all the hideous and degrading agonies which must attend a man bound to a wife at once, intemperate and unchaste. My brother, in the interval, was dead, and at the end of the four years, my father died too. I was rich enough now, yet poor to hideous indigence, and nature the most gross and pure depraved I ever saw was associated with mine, and called by the law and by society a part of me, and I could not rid myself of it by any legal proceedings, for the doctors now discovered that my wife was mad. Her excesses had prematurely developed the germs of insanity. Jane, you don't like my narrative. You look almost sick. Shall I defer the rest to another day? No, sir. Finish it now. I pity you. I do earnestly pity you. Pity, Jane, from some people is a noxious and insulting sort of tribute, which one is justified in hurling back in the teeth of those who offer it, but that is the sort of pity native to callous, selfish hearts. It is a hybrid egotistical pain at hearing of woes, crossed with ignorant contempt for those who have endured them. But that is not your pity, Jane. It is not the feeling of which your whole face is full at this moment, with which your eyes are now almost overflowing, with which your heart is heaving, with which your hand is trembling in mine. Your pity, my darling, is the suffering mother of love. Its anguish is the very natal pang of the divine passion. I accept it, Jane. Let the daughter have free advent. My arms wait to receive her. Now, sir, proceed. What did you do when you found she was mad? Jane, I approached the verge of despair. A remnant of self-respect was all that intervened between me and the gulf. In the eyes of the world, I was doubtless covered with grimy dishonor, but I resolved to be clean in my own sight, and to the last I repudiated the contamination of her crimes and wrenched myself from connection with her mental defects. Still, society associated my name and person with hers. I yet saw her and heard her daily, something of her breath, mixed with the air I breathed, and besides, I remembered I had once been her husband. That recollection was then and is now inexpressibly odious to me. Moreover, I knew that while she lived I could never be the husband of another and better wife, and though five years my senior, her family and her father had lied to me even in the particular of her age, she was likely to live as long as I, being as robust in frame as she was and firm in mind. Thus, at the age of twenty-six, I was hopeless." One night I had been awakened by her yells. Since the medical men had pronounced her mad, she had, of course, been shut up. It was a fiery West Indian night, one of the description that frequently precede the hurricanes of those climates. Being unable to sleep in bed, I got up and opened the window. The air was like sulfur steams. I could find no refreshment anywhere. Mosquitoes came buzzing in and hummed sullenly around the room. The sea, which I could hear from thence, rumbled dull like an earthquake. Black clouds were casting up over it. The moon was setting in the waves, broad and red like a hot cannonball. She threw her last bloody glance over a world quivering with affirmative tempest. I was physically influenced by the atmosphere and scene, and my ears were filled with the curses. The maniac still shrieked out, wherein she momentarily mingled my name with such a tone of demon hate with such language. No professed harlot ever had a fouler vocabulary than she. Though two rooms off, I heard every word. The thin partitions of the West India house opposing but slight obstruction to her wolfish cries. This life, said I at last, is hell. This is the air. Those are the sounds of the bottomless pit. I have a right to deliver myself from it if I can. The sufferings of this mortal state will leave me with a heavy flesh that now cumbers my soul. Of the fanatics of burning eternity, I have no fear. There is not a future state worse than this present one. Let me break away and go home to God. I said this whilst I knelt down at and unlocked a trunk which contained a brace of loaded pistols. I mean to shoot myself. I only entertain the intention for a moment. For not being insane, the crisis of exquisite and unalloyed despair which had originated the wish and design of self-destruction was passed in a second. A wind fresh from Europe blew over the ocean and rushed through the open casement. The storm broke, streamed, thundered, blazed, and the air grew pure. 
I then framed and fixed a resolution. While I walked under the dripping orange trees of my wet garden and amongst its drenched pomegranates and pineapples, and while the refulgent dawn of the tropics kindled round me, I reasoned thus, Jane, and now listen, for it was true wisdom that consoled me in that hour, and showed me the right path to follow. The sweet wind from Europe was still whispering in the refreshed leaves, and the Atlantic was thundering in glorious liberty. My heart dried up and scorched for a long time, swelled to the tone and filled with living blood. My being longed for renewal. My soul thirsted for a pure draught. I saw hope revive and felt regeneration possible. From a flowery arch at the bottom of my garden, I gazed over the sea. Bluer than the sky, the old world was beyond. Clear prospects opened thus. Go, said Hope, and live again in Europe. There it is not known what a sullied name you bear, nor what a filthy burden is bound to you. You may take the maniac with you to England, confine her with due attendance and precautions at Thornfield. Then travel yourself to what clime you will, and form what new tie you like. That woman, who has so abused your long suffering, so sullied your name, so outraged your honor, so blighted your youth, is not your wife, nor are you her husband. See that she is cared for as her condition demands, and you have done all that God and humanity require of you. Let her identity, her connection with yourself, be buried in oblivion. You are bound to impart them to no living being. Place her in safety and comfort. Shelter her degradation with secrecy and leave her. I acted precisely on this suggestion. My father and brother had not made my marriage known to their acquaintance, because in the very first letter I wrote to apprise them of the union, having already begun to experience extreme disgust of its consequences and from the family character and constitution, seeing a hideous future opening to me, I added an urgent charge to keep it secret. And very soon, the infamous conduct of the wife my father had selected for me was such as to make him blush to, her, to own her as a daughter-in-law. Far from desiring to publish the connection, he became as anxious to conceal it as myself. To England, then, I conveyed her, a fearful voyage I had with such a monster in the vessel. Glad was I when I at last got her to Thornfield and saw her safely lodged in that third-story room, of whose secret inner cabinet she is now for ten years made a wild beast den, a goblin cell. I had some trouble in finding an attendant for her, as it was necessary to select one on whose fidelity dependence could be placed, for her ravings would inevitably betray my secret. Besides, she had lucid intervals of days, sometimes weeks, which she filled up with abuse of me. At last I hired Grace Poole from the Grimby's, from the Grimsby, the Grimsby? Retreat. She and the surgeon, Carter, who dressed Mason's wounds that night he was stabbed and worried, are the only two I have ever admitted to my confidence. Mrs. Fairfax may indeed have suspected something, but she could have gained no precise knowledge as to facts. Grace has, on the whole, proved a good keeper, though owing partly to a fault of her own, of which it appears nothing can cure her, and which is incident to her harassing profession. Her vigilance has been more than once lulled and baffled. The lunatic is both cunning and malignant. She has never failed to take advantage of her guardian's temporary lapses. Once to secrete the knife with which she stabbed her brother, and twice to possess herself of the key of her cell, and issue therefrom in the night time. On the first of these occasions, she perpetrated the attempt to burn me in my bed. On the second, she paid that ghastly visit to you. I thank Providence who watched over you that she then spent her fury on your wedding apparel, which perhaps brought back vague reminiscence of her own bridal days. But on what might have happened, I cannot endure to reflect. When I think of the thing which flew at my throat this morning, hanging its black and scarlet visage over the nest of my dove, my blood curdles. And what, sir? I asked while he paused. Did you do when you had settled her here? Where did you go? What did I do, Jane? I transformed myself into a will-o'-the-wisp. Where did I go? I pursued wanderings as wild as those of the March spirit. I sought the continent, and went devious through all its lands. My fixed desire was to seek and find a good and intelligent woman, who I could love, a contrast to the fury I left at Thornfield. But you could not marry, sir. I had determined, and was convinced that I could and ought. It was not my original intention to deceive, as I have deceived you. I meant to tell my tale plainly, and make my proposals openly. And it appeared to me so absolutely rational that I should be considered free to love and be loved. I never doubted some woman might be found willing and able to understand my case and accept me, in spite of the curse with which I was burdened. Well, sir, when you are inquisitive, Jane, you always make me smile. You open your eyes like an eager bird and make every now and then a restless movement, as if answers and speech did not flow fast enough for you, and you wanted to read the tablet of one's heart. But before I go on, tell me what you mean by your well, sir. It is a small phrase, very frequent with you, and which many a time has drawn me on and on through interminable talk. I don't very well know why. I mean, what next? How did you proceed? 
what came of such an event. Precisely. And what do you wish to know now? Whether you found anyone you liked, whether you asked her to marry you, and what she said. I can tell you whether I found anyone I liked, and whether I asked her to marry me, but what she said is yet to be recorded in the Book of Fate. For ten long years I roved about, living first in one capital, then another, sometimes in St. Petersburg, oftener in Paris, occasionally in Rome, Naples and Florence. Provided with plenty of money and the passport of an old name, I could choose my own society. No circles were closed against me. I sought my ideal of a woman amongst English ladies, French countesses, Italian signoras, and German grafinen. I could not find her. Sometimes, for a fleeting moment, I thought I caught a glance, heard a tone, beheld a form which announced the realization of my dream, but I was presently undeserved. You are not to suppose that I desired perfection, either, of a mind or person. I longed only for what suited me, for the antipodes of the Creole, and I longed vainly. Amongst them all, I found not one whom, had I been ever so free, I warned as I was of the risks, the horrors, the loathings of incongruous unions, would have asked to marry me. Disappointment made me reckless. I tried dissipation, never debauchery. That I hated and hate. That was my Indian Messalina's attribute. Rooted disgust at it and her restrained me much, even in pleasure. Wow, that sentence was very hard for me to read. Any enjoyment that bordered on riot seemed to approach me to her and her vices, and I eschewed it. Yet I could not live alone, so I tried the companionship of mistresses. The first I chose was Celine Varens, another of those steps which make a man spurn himself when he recalls them. You already know what she was and how my liaison with her terminated. She had two successors, an Italian, Giacinta, and a German, Clara, both considered singularly handsome. What was their beauty to me in a few weeks? Giacinta was unprincipled and violent. I tired of her in three months. Clara was honest and quiet, but heavy, mindless, and unimpressible. Not one whit to my taste. I was glad to give her a sufficient sum to set her up in a good line of business, and so get decently rid of her. But, Jane, I see by your face you are not forming a very favorable opinion of me just now. You think me an unfeeling, loose-principled rake, don't you? I don't like you so well as I have done sometimes, indeed, sir. Did it not seem to you in the least wrong to live in that way, first with one mistress and then another? You talk of it as a mere matter of course. It was with me, and I did not like it. I was a groveling fashion of existence. I should never like to return to it. Hiring a mistress is the next worst thing to buying a slave. Both are often by nature and always by position inferior. Whoa. Whoa, Rochester. That's some... That's problematic face words you're making. Not that all of them haven't been problematic, but... Oh, dear. And to live familiarly with inferiors is degrading. Oh, okay. I now hate the recollection of the time I passed with Celine, Giacinta, and Clara. I think you actually just hate all women? Um, yeah. I felt the truth of these words, and I drew from them the certain inference that if I were so far to forget myself and all the teaching that had ever been instilled into me, as under any pretext, with any justification, through any temptation, to become the successor of these poor girls, he would one day regard me with the same feeling which now in his mind desecrated their memory. I did not give utterance to this conviction. It was enough to feel it. I impressed it on my heart that it might remain there to serve me as an aid in the time of trial. Now, Jane, why don't you say, well, sir? I have not done. You are looking grave. You disapprove of me still. I see. But let me come to the point. Last January, rid of all mistresses in a harsh, bitter frame of mind, the result of a useless, roving, lonely life, corroded with disappointment, sourly disposed against all men, and especially against all womankind, for I began to regard the notion of an intellectual, faithful, loving woman as a mere dream, recalled by business, I became back to England. On a frosty winter afternoon, I rode inside of Thornfield Hall, a horrid spot. I expected no peace, no pleasure there. On a stile in Hay Lane, I saw a quiet little figure sitting by herself. I passed it as negligently as I did at the pollard willow opposite to it. I had no presentiment of what it would be to me, no inward warning that the arbitress of my life, my genius for good or evil, waited there in humbled guise. I did not know it even then. On the occasion of Mesrour's accident, it came up and gravely offered me help. Childish and slender creature, it seemed as if a linnet had hopped to my foot and proposed to bear me on its tiny wing. I was surly, but the thing would not go. It stood by me with strange perseverance, and looked and spoke with a sort of authority. I must be aided, and by that hand, and aided, I was. When once I had pressed the frail shoulder, something new, a fresh sap and scent, stole into my frame. It was well I had learnt that this elf must return to me, that it belonged to my house down below, where I could not have felt it pass away from under my hand, and seen it vanish behind the dim hedge without singular regret. 
I heard you come home that night, Jane, though probably we were not aware that I thought of you or watched for you. The next day I observed you, myself unseen, for half an hour while you played with Adele in the gallery. It was a snowy day, I recollect, and you could not go out of doors. I was in my room. The door was ajar. I could both listen and watch. Adele claimed your outward attention for a while, yet I fancied your thoughts were elsewhere. But you were very patient with her, my little Jane. You talked to her and amused her a long time. When at last she left you, you lapsed at once into a deep reverie. You betook yourself slowly to pace the gallery. Now and then, in passing a casement, you glanced out at the thick falling snow. You listened to the sobbing wind, and again you paced gently on and dreamed. I think those day visions were not dark. There was a pleasurable illumination in your eye occasionally. A soft excitement in your aspect, which told of no bitter bilious hypochondriac brooding. Your look revealed rather the sweet musings of youth, when its spirit follows on willing wings the flight of hope, up and on to an ideal heaven. The voices Mrs. Fairfax, speaking to a servant in the hall, wakened you. And how curiously you smiled to and at yourself, Janet. There was much sense in your smile. It was very shrewd and seemed to make light of your own abstraction. It seemed to say, My fine visions are all very well, but I must not forget they are absolutely unreal. I have a rosy sky and a green flower Eden in my brain. But without, I am perfectly aware, lies at my feet a rough track to travel, and around me gather black tempests to encounter. You ran downstairs and demanded of Mrs. Fairfax some occupation. The weekly house accounts to make up, or something of that sort, I think it was. I was vexed with you for getting out of my sight. Impatiently, I waited for evening, when I might summon you to my presence, an unusual, to me, a perfectly new character. I suspected was yours. I desired to search it deeper and know it better. You entered the room with a look and air at once shy and independent. You were cleanly dressed, much as you are now. I made you talk ere long. I found you full of strange contrasts. Your garb and manner were restricted by rule. Your air was often different, and altogether that of one refined by nature, but absolutely unused to society, and a good deal afraid of making herself disadvantageously, disadvantageously conspicuous by some solecism or blunder. Yet when addressed, you lifted a keen, a daring, and a glowing eye to your interlocutor's face. There was penetration and power in each glance you gave. When plied by those questions, you found ready and round answers. Very soon, you seemed to get used to me, and I believe you felt the existence of my sympathy between you and your grim and cross master. Jane, for it was astonishing to see how quickly a certain pleasant ease tranquilized your manner. Snarl as I would, you showed no surprise, fear, annoyance, or displeasure at my moroseness. You watched me, and now and then smiled at me with a simple yet sagacious grace I cannot describe. I was at once content and stimulated with what I saw. I liked what I had seen and wished to see more. Yet for a long time I treated you distantly and sought your company rarely. I was an intellectual epicure and wished to prolong the gratification of making this novel and piquant acquaintance. Besides, I was for a while troubled with a haunting fear that if I handled the flower freely, its bloom would fade. The sweet charm of its freshness would leave it. I did not then know that it was no transitory blossom, but rather the radiant resemblance of one cut in an indestructible gem. Moreover, I wished to see whether you would seek me if I shunned you, but you did not. You kept in the schoolroom as still as your own desk and easel. If by chance I met you, you passed me as soon and with a li as little token of recognition as was consistent with respect. Your habitual expression in those days, Jane, was a thoughtful look, not despondent, for you were not sickly, but not buoyant, for you had little hope and no actual pleasure. I wondered what you thought of me, or if you ever thought of me, and resolved to find this out. I resumed my notice of you. There was something glad in your glance and genial in your manner. When you conversed, I saw you had a social heart. It was the silent schoolroom. It was the tedium of your life that made you mournful. I permitted myself the delight of being kind to you. Kindness stirred emotion soon. Your face became soft in expression. Your tones gentle. I liked my name pronounced by your lips in a grateful, happy accent. I used to enjoy a chance meeting with you, Jane. At this time, there was a curious hesitation in your manner. You glanced at me with a slight trouble, a hovering doubt. You did not know what my caprice might be, whether I was going to play the master and be stern, or the friend and be benignant. That word again. I was now too fond of you, often to simulate the first whim, and when I stretched my hand out cordially, such bloom and light and bliss rose to your young, wistful features. I had much ado often to avoid straining you then, and there to my heart. Don't talk any more of those days, sir. I interrupted, furtively dashing away some tears from my eyes. His language was torture to me, for I knew what I must do, and do soon, and all these reminiscences and these revelations of his feelings only made my work more difficult. No, Jane, he returned, what necessity is there to dwell on the past when the present is so much surer, the future so much brighter? I shuddered to hear the infatuated assertion. You see now how the case stands, do you not? he continued. After a youth and manhood have passed half in unenterable misery and half in dreary solitude, I have for the first time found what I can truly love. I have found you. You are my sympathy, my better self, my good angel. I am bound to you with a strong attachment. I think you good, gifted, lovely. 
A fervent, a solemn passion is conceived in my heart. It leans to you, draws you to my center and spring of life, wraps my existence about you, and, kindly and pure, powerful flame, fuses you and me in one. It was because I felt and knew this that I resolved to marry you. To tell me that I had already a wife is simply mockery. You know now that I had but a hideous demon. I was wrong to attempt to deceive you, but I feared a stubbornness that exists in your character. I feared every instilled prejudice. I wanted to have you safe before hazarding confidences. This was cowardly. I should have appealed to your nobleness and magnanimity at first, as I do now. Open to you plainly, open to you plainly my life of agony, describe to you my hunger and thirst after our higher and worthier existence shown to you, not my resolution, that word is weak, but my resistless bent to love faithfully and well, where I am faithfully and well loved in return. Then I should have asked you to accept my pledge of fidelity and to give me yours. Jane, give it to me now. A pause. Why are you silent, Jane? I was experiencing an ordeal. A hand of fiery iron grasped my vitals terrible moment full of struggle blackness burning not a human being that ever lived could wish to be loved better than i was loved and him who thus loved me i absolutely worshipped and i must renounce love an idol one drear word comprised my intolerable duty depart jane you understand what i want of you just this promise i will be yours mr rochester mr rochester i will not be yours another long silence jane recommenced he with a gentleness that broke me down with grief and turned me stone cold with ominous terror for this still voice was the pant of a lion rising jane do you mean to go one way into the world and to let me go another i do jane bending towards and embracing me do you mean it now i do and now softly kissing my forehead and cheek i do extricating myself from restraint rapidly and completely oh jane this is bitter this this is wicked it would not be wicked to love me it would be to obey you. A wild look raised his brows, crossed his features. He rose, but he forbore yet. I laid my hand on the back of a chair for support. I shook, I feared, but I resolved. One instant, Jane, give one glance to my horrible life when you are gone. All happiness will be torn away with you. What then is left for a wife I have but the maniac upstairs as well might you refer me to some corpse in yonder churchyard? What shall I do, Jane? Where turn for a companion and for some hope? Do as I do, and trust in God and yourself. Believe in heaven." hope to meet again there then you will not yield no then you condemn me to live wretched and to die accursed his voice rose i advise you to live sinless and i wish you to die tranquil then you snatch love and innocence from me you fling me back on lust for a passion vice for an occupation mr rochester i no more assign this fate to you than i grasp at it for myself we were born to strive and endure you as well as i do so you'll forget me before i forget you you make me a liar by such language. You sully my honor. I declared I could not change. You tell me to my face I shall change soon. And what a distortion in your judgment, what a perversity in your ideas is proved by your conduct. Is it better to drive a fellow creature to despair than to transgress a mere human law, no man being injured by the breach? For you have neither relatives nor acquaintances whom you need fear to offend by living with me. This was true. And while he spoke, my very conscience and reason turned traitors against me and charged me with crime in the resisting him. They spoke almost as loud as feeling, and that clamored wildly. Oh, comply, it said. Think of his misery. Think of his danger. Look at his state when left alone. Remember his headlong nature. Consider the recklessness following on despair. Soothe him, save him, love him, tell him you love him, and will be his. Who in the world cares for you, or who will be injured by what you do? Still indomitable was the reply. I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself. I will keep the law given by God, sanctioned by man. I will hold to the principles received by me when I was sane and not mad as I am now. Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this, when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor. Stringent are they, inviolate they shall be. If at my individual convenience I might break them, what would be their worth? They have a worth, so I have always believed, and if I cannot believe it now, it is because I am insane, quite insane, with my veins running fire and my heart beating faster than I can count in its throbs. Preconceived opinions, foregone determinations, are all I have at this hour to stand by. There I plant my foot. I did. Mr. Rochester, reading my countenance, saw I had done so. His fury was wrought to the highest. He must yield to it for a moment, whatever allowed. He crossed the floor and seized my arm and grasped my waist. He seemed to devour me with his flaming glance. 
Physically, I felt at the moment powerless, as stubble exposed to the draft and glow of a furnace. Mentally, I still possess my soul, and with it the certainty of ultimate safety. The soul, fortunately, has an interpreter, often an unconscious but still a truthful interpreter, in the eye. My eye rose to his, and while I looked in his fierce face, I gave an involuntary sigh. His gripe was painful, and my overtaxed strength almost exhausted. "'Never,' said he as he ground his teeth, "'never anything at once so frail and so indomitable. A mere reed she feels in my hand.' And she shook me with the force of his hand. "'I could bend her with my finger and thumb. And what good would it do if I bent, if I uptore, if I crushed her? Consider that I, consider the resolute, wild, free thing looking out of it, defying me with more than courage, with a stern triumph.' Whatever I do with its cage, I cannot get at it, the savage, beautiful creature. If I tear if I rend the slight prison, my outrage would only let the captive loose. Conqueror I might be of the house, but the inmate would escape to heaven before I could call myself possessor of its clay-dwelling place. And it is you, spirit, with will and energy and virtue and purity that I want, not alone your brittle frame. Of course you could come with soft flight and nestle against my heart if you would. Seized against your will, you will elude the grasp like an essence. You will vanish ere I inhale your fragrance. Oh, come, Jane, come! As he said this... He released me from his clutch and only looked at me. The look was far worse to resist than the frantic strain. Only an idiot, however, would have succumbed now. I had dared and baffled his fury. I must elude his sorrow. I retired to the door. You are going, Jane? I am going, sir. You are leaving me? Yes. You will not come? You will not be my comforter, my rescuer, my deep love, my wild woe, my frantic prayer, and nothing all to you? What unutterable pathos was in his voice. How hard it was to reiterate firmly. I am going. Jane! Mr. Rochester! Withdraw, then. I consent. But remember, you leave me here in anguish. Go up to your own room. Think over all I have said. And, Jane, cast a glance on my sufferings. Think of me. He turned away. He threw himself on his face on the sofa. Oh, Jane! My hope, my love, my life! Broken in anguish from his lips. Then came a deep, strong sob. I had already gained the door, but reader, I walked back, walked back as determinedly as I had retreated. I knelt down by him. I turned his face from the cushion to me. I kissed his cheek. I smoothed his hair with my hand. God bless you, my dear master, I said. God keep you from harm and wrong, direct you, solace you, reward you well for your past kindness to me. Little Jane's love would have been my best reward, he answered. Without it, my heart is broken, but Jane will give me her love, yes, nobly, generously. Up the blood rushed to his face. Forth flashed the fire from his eyes. Erect he sprang. He held his arms out, but I evaded the embrace and at once quitted the room. Farewell, was the cry of my heart as I left him. Despair added, farewell forever. So that was a long read. Like, four million pages. Um, Jane is going to leave. She hasn't, she hasn't left yet, but she, she is going to leave. But I wanted you guys to have that, uh, long parting scene because there was some good dramatics there. And I think it says a lot about both of the characters. Um, so that is where I will leave you for now. Thank you for listening, friends. Sleep well.